Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 289. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you decided to join us. It's good to have you here. So as we are looking at uh, the, the malgovernance that we are suffering under, one of the things we have to realize is that the enemy is not this political party or that political party, because in many respects, it's a uniparty. In many respects, it's not re- there's not really a dime's worth of difference between the players in each political party. And this helps explain why elect, our elections go the way they do. Uh, the administrative state, otherwise known as the deep state, otherwise known as the swamp, is uh, they are the true power brokers. They are the ones who run the show. And this is what explains why, however the election goes, the government always seems to get in. So something has to be done about the administrative state. And uh, the administrative state, uh, well, I'll begin with all the three-letter agencies, the EPA, the IRS, the FBI, ATF. You know, they would be uh, the administrative state. Now, the, the pretense is that these are agencies that are, have their authority delegated to them by the executive. So if you've taken a civics class, you know that there are three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And then the legislative is divided at the national level into two chambers, the House and the Senate. And there's an exquisite balance of power. Now, in this thinking, the, these, all these agencies are extensions of the executive power. So the president has basically delegated power to these agencies to implement implement the laws that Congress passes, but the uh, administrative state has swollen and has grown has grown beyond all mortal reckoning, such that these agencies can promulgate regulations that Congress never thought of, Congress never saw, no representative ever voted for it, and and no executive ever told the agency to do it. So you could, for example. This actually happened to me. Well, it almost happened to me. I was worried it might happen to me. A number of years ago, we had our house was on three acres just out of town, and our house was up on a hill, and our acreage went down to the road, and there was a, the lower acre was next to the road and well below our house. And in the springtime, when the snow was melting and it was raining, we frequently got a um, puddle a significant size puddle on our lower acre. And then one time, a duck started landing on our puddle. And I was kind of concerned about it because I, I didn't want anybody from the government seeing my duck landing on my lower acre because I didn't want my lower acre to be declared a wetlands. Or, and all it would take is some officious person who worked for the EPA driving by to look over to the left and see my duck and say, these are, wet, these are wetlands. They weren't wetlands. It was a puddle. The point is that an EPA official could 
involve me in years of appeals and litigation and turmoil and, and, and so on, simply on their say-so. And Congress never passed a law saying that my, uh, my duck was living in a wetlands. Uh, the president never told them. And on the, the way it, uh, it has developed, the president could say, see a news story about my duck, me and my puddle and my duck, and he could tell the EPA to lay off. And the EPA could tell him to pound sand. In other words, the president is no longer in charge of this Frankenstein's monster. So what has to happen is we need to figure out a way to eliminate the administrative state. Another book that I've um, reviewed in this space is um, Philip Hamburger's book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? And the answer to that question is yes. Administrative law is unlawful. It is illegal. It's unconstitutional. It is the kind of regulation that our Constitution was drafted explicitly to prohibit. That being the case, what do we do? We've got this gargantuan administrative state, and we have to figure out a way to deal with it. Now, it's very easy for populist conservatives to run on the platform of drain the swamp. Okay, but you can't just get the get the chimps jumping by saying drain the swamp and have everybody excited about draining the swamp. It's not enough to want to drain the swamp. You have to have somebody design pumps that are big enough. You you can't just wish that you that the swamp could be drained. You you have to have some sort of mechanism for doing it. And um, I'm going to look. I'm going to sound like I'm changing the subject here for a minute, but I'm I'm not really. I want to bring up the um, the historical example of Grenada. In 1983, uh, Ronald Reagan invaded, sent sent U.S. troops into Grenada to rescue some American medical students and to overthrow the Marxist government in Grenada. Now, the thing that is interesting about this is that communism, which you know began with the Russian Revolution, uh, one of the things and it's one of the things that communism had going for it is that they had a robust eschatology. In other words, they they didn't just have a doctrine of shared possessions or class conflicts and so on. They also had a doctrine of history. They taught that the dictatorship of the proletariat was inevitable. It was going to be the result of um, a Hegelian dialectic where there's a thesis and an antithesis then a resulting synthesis, that synthesis becomes a new thesis with a new antithesis, and this is going to ratchet its way up to the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is the way history had to go. So the, um, the, the, the main enemy that we were facing with the commies was they had an eschatology of victory. They had, they had a doctrine of history, and the West no longer did. Now, the Soviets were really poor compared to the West. The West was fabulously wealthy, but the communists knew what they wanted, and they knew that they had a doctrine supporting them that they were going to get what they wanted. And that sort of put the West all in a doodah where we felt more threatened by them than I think on paper we ought to have been. Now, what happened, because they, the communists had this doctrine of inexorable progress, that a bunch of people, even the anti-communists in the West, half believed. When Reagan 
invaded Grenada and a communist dictatorship, a, a Marxist government, was overthrown. And their doctrine was communist uh, progress is inexorable and cannot be turned back. And then we turned it back. Everybody looked at one another, blinking, saying, oh, the, sort of the myth of invulnerability was destroyed. And it was six years later that the Berlin Wall fell. All right, so I'm, I'm arguing that this overinflated, swollen communist empire was a balloon, and Grenada was this little thin needle-like thing that um, punctured the balloon. And Grenada was not that big a deal. Grenada was not that big a deal. But the doctrine of history that it exploded was one of the largest things in the world, one of the greatest things in the world. So how do I apply this to uh, the administrative state? Well, I would, I would encourage everybody to think in terms of a Grenada strategy. Uh, I recently blogged about this. You may have um, seen my thoughts on this elsewhere, but I'll say it again. If we get someone in a position like a president who's willing to tackle the administrative state, what he needs to do is he needs to review all the federal agencies that are, and he needs to find Grenada. He's got to find a little teeny tiny federal agency that is completely useless, that was established in the 1890s, that has got a modest little budget, and they do nothing. They don't do a great deal of harm. They don't do. They don't provide any benefit. But they're a federal agency, and they're just sitting there. Um, uh, the the agency for the retraining of buggy whip manufacturers who've been put out of work by the horseless carriage. All right. So, if that agency is eliminated, not moved, but eliminated, and it's trumpeted as a great conservative success, it's going to deal with that that myth of that has been carefully generated that in the modern world, governments must necessarily grow. No, they don't have to necessarily grow. Always will be God. Continuing on with episode 289, as we study the New Testament, under the course name of Hamartiology, uh, well, we're studying sin in the New Testament, under the course name of Hamartiology, we need to distinguish those sins that describe actions and those sinful conditions that are the source of those actions. In other words, being comes before doing. Everything we do comes out of what we are. So a, a bad tree produces bad fruit. It's the nature of the tree that produces the fruit. Good tree produces good fruit. So whether we're talking about holy actions or unholy ones. Now, the word echidna, echidna, E-C-H-I-D-N-A, echidna, means viper. There's one instance in the New Testament where this word is used to refer to a regular old viper. This was the time when Paul was bitten in the course of gathering wood after they had wrecked on the island of Malta. That's in Acts 28.3. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, that's just a regular old snake. But most of the time, uh, the word viper in the New Testament refers to the religious leaders who were descended from their father, the devil, the serpent, who deceived our first parents in the garden. They were the seed of the serpent, which is why Jesus talked to them the way he does. When he says they graduated from Bag of Snakes Seminary, when he says, you are of your father, the devil, when he says, you brood of vipers, 
it's all referring to the same thing. So see how, and John the Baptist led the way. See how John the Baptist referred to them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's in Matthew 3, 7, also Luke 3, 7. And then Jesus takes the same line with them, right? He says in two places, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. That's Matthew 12, 34. And then in Matthew 23, uh, Matthew 23, 33, he says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? So, we see that sin proceeds from nature. A restored nature that is given to us in regeneration is the source of godly action. And our sins that we commit come, proceed from the heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, and Jesus teaches us, as Jeremiah says, and Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So we see that being precedes doing. And vipers are going to act like vipers. If it's a sin to act like a viper, then it is sinful to be a viper. God don't never change. He's God. All right, continuing with uh, podcast episode 289. The book I want to review this time is a book uh, by Peter Drucker. And it's an interesting book called The Daily Drucker. I've uh, seen Drucker's name for many years. I've seen him quoted in numerous um, places, and have always admired his pithy insight. And I thought, oh, and this book is arranged—it's a book of quotations from Peter Drucker, and it's kind of odd because it's arranged like a daily devotional. So there's a reading, a few paragraphs from somewhere in Drucker's writings for every day of the year. So it's a it's the Daily Drucker. You, if you want your dose of Peter Drucker, you, uh, you get up on May 2nd and you read the May 2nd entry, and you're going to encounter some sort of insightful observation regarding business and enterprise and corporations and so on. A famous one is um, uh, Drucker distinguishes efficiency from effectiveness. Efficiency, he says, is doing something well. And effectiveness is doing the right thing. So doing something right and doing the right thing are not the, not the same thing. Efficiency is one thing. Uh, effectiveness is another. One of the, one of the uh, striking things that I got from uh, this book early on, actually, was Drucker encouraging businessmen, but this is something I think it should apply equally well to political analysts and to pastors and uh, to preachers and so forth. But Drucker uh, says, you should look to see the future that has already happened. Let me say that again. One of the things you want to learn how to do is identify the future that has already happened. There are things that that are already in place, already done. They're going to have certain necessary repercussions. And the thing that's going to cause those repercussions is already accomplished. It's the future that's already happened. All the uh, downstream consequences that people are going to notice two years from now, they've not already happened, but the future that will necessitate those things, that future has already happened. And it's important for businessmen, it's important for Christian merchants, 
it's important for educators, it's important for pastors, important for Christian leaders to look at the future that has already happened. Mm-hmm.